Media Dynasty. The pitch on the ground. Again, Ward, he stabs, he throws, and the Seahawks win! Three titles in four years for Salve Regina. They capture the 2019 Commonwealth Coast Conference Championship. That was the call from winning Salve Regina when they're third, con no, not third consecutive. It's the third out of four. Third out of four, Commonwealth Coast Camp. Oh, Commonwealth Coast Champion. Commonwealth Coast Champion. Commonwealth Coast Conference Championships. Oh my gosh. That was tough to say. We call it the Triple C. That was when Salve won the Triple C title. Triple C championship. That's the quadruple C. The quad C. So Salve is a D3 team. They play out of Newport, Rhode Island. And it's a good program up there. They obviously, they've won three out of four conference championships. And they looked really good heading into this season as well. When, um, when I was making the Division Three perfect game rankings, I probably had them penciled in probably around 30, 30, 35 in that range. And I really anticipated that um, they, were, they were a team which could very easily make their way into the top 25. And had the season not been concluded early, I think there's a good chance they'd be in there right now. They had a very strong pitching staff. I know that had one, pit, one, one pitcher in particular, Patrick Maybach, who, who was just phenomenal. But one of the main reasons I, I've been big on Salve is their head coach, Eric Sorella. There's, there's a lot to be said for the old school coaches who, you know, have been in the dugout for, for decades. But uh, Sorella is, is, is uh, he's one of the new generation of coaches. And he is a baseball guy through and through. His dad was the coach. He was the, he was the coach of the Seahawks before him. And um, Coach Sorrell took over the took over the reins. And before he was a coach, he was a two-time All-American for the Seahawks. And he put up some crazy numbers for him. And we talk about that later in the interview. Uh, he was a, he was a great. He was just a phenomenal baseball player. And when you listen to us talk, I think it really it really comes through how much he is knowledgeable at the game and how much he loves the game, and how he's able to succeed at this small little school in Rhode Island. Now this interview was actually conducted late last summer and I had kind of put it on the back burner because at the time I didn't think that people would really be into listening to some college baseball talk. So my plan was to wait until the season started and, and, then, and then upload it. But I, 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 I honestly just bit off more than I could chew and I got sidetracked and get out there. So now that there's no baseball going on, I have nothing but time. So I got this out of the archives and dusted it off and finally able to get it out on the internet for you. So this edition of the 1-2-3 Inning Podcast is an interview with Salve Regina head coach Eric Sorella. Oh, and I got to apologize real quick. We kind of jump in like right in the middle, well, at the beginning of the interview, but you'll, you'll, you'll catch on. Uh, there's plenty of, plenty of Division One coaches that... Uh, the game is passing by, but there's not pressure to win for whatever reason because it's not a Power Five conference. Um, you know, and you, you hear, I, I I coach at that level, so I know plenty of you know programs that sure. are underachieving. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, it, you know, when you start comparing teams to teams, I uh, I don't know if the, the difference is as substantial as people would make it out to be at all. 
there are a lot of quality players and programs at the small school level. I mean, they're not going to compete against LSU, Oregon State, but they could give, you know, a team like Georgia State or, or Longwood a run for their money. So especially if you're someone who wants to play and wants to get noticed, if you look at a, 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 a Division II, Division III NAIA program, you have a much better opportunity of someone seeing you and being able to stand out and getting, you know, one-on-one, one-on-one coaching. The gap has closed. 10, 15 years ago, there was probably, you know, the 68 Division three schools in New England. There's probably 15 full-time head coaches. And mm-hmm. now there's probably 50. And of those 50, there's probably 10 of those schools have full-time assistant coaches. So you, you're just, you're seeing so many more coaches out on the road and at recruiting events. And um, so the, the, the gap between the levels is not very big. I mean, you see, you see D3 kids obviously getting drafted and, um, some of my guys playing in leagues, you know, in the summertime with division three, with division one guys at sometimes outperforming them. So yeah, sure. Now it's just getting administration to catch up to that too, because, um, you know, you, you get that stigma that, well, it's, it's student athlete and it's like, yeah, you're right. It is. It's student athlete everywhere. Um, I mean, nobody wants to miss class to go to a game or something, but because it's, a school with 2,000 kids or what have you, and they only offer this class once. Um, you yeah. Know, it just, it, it, there's, some, there's still some hurdles to, uh, to get over, so to speak. Looking at your, your profile as a coach, there, it's very heavy on your playing abilities. And I'm looking at your numbers, and I cannot believe the production that you put up as a player. They're Little League numbers. They are. They are. <laughs> so and, and the one thing I, I noticed, you batted – and I'm sure you probably know these numbers. I might. There it is. The N- you were the NCAA batting leader in batting average at 504, plus walks your senior year. What on earth was your on-base percentage? I was like 650, I think. Six. Oh, my God. See, that's insane. That's a job, right? When you're a leadoff hitter, you get a base. <laughs> sure, but, I mean, I don't think anybody can do it like that. I mean, I've been watching numbers for 10, 12 years, and I've, I can't think of any seeing anybody freaky that much. I mean, you'll see people who can bat 500, but not that also draws so many rocks. The kicker though, is that NCAA Division Three didn't recognize on-base percentage as a category, you know, as a, as a statistic until 2009. So um, my, you know, 514 and 42 walks and then 504 and 49 walks, yeah. junior and senior year, didn't, didn't translate to any uh, hardware, so to speak. Well, did you didn't have any hit-by-pitches in there, too? Uh, my senior year, I, I was, you know, I, I wasn't trying to. <laughs> sure. I wasn't trying to. Uh, so I always tell my guys, listen, if you're if you're hitting 400, go ahead, you can get out of the way of the ball. They said if you're not, <laughs> you know, don't move. So and then after that, was there any thought that you might get a you know draft after that? Especially because those are those are that's that's kind of the prime money ball era too. You know, when getting on base was a big thing. Right. And um, so I, I played in the New England Senior All-Star Game, which uh, at the time was at Fenway Park. Um, we took BP on the field. You know, it was an unbelievable experience. But before the game, I got interviewed by somebody from the Boston Herald, and I got a big write-up in the Herald, um, you know, about what I had done as a player and, and a student. And, um, you know, I made mention to the fact that, like, I think on that day – 
Mark Bellhorn was starting at second base and, you know, he's there because he gets on base. And uh, I mean, I may, I did make reference to stuff like that. And he, they wrote yeah. an article and the title was, you know, Salvage Sorella feels a draft. Um, and there was obviously a, a handful of scouts there that night. Um, so I foolishly sat in front of my computer for, you know, two, three oh, days and watched the, yeah. yeah, you know, you just, you, you don't know any better. Um, sure. But, well, I don't blame you either, though. Well, you just you just wanted a a, a sniff, you know, just a shot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously some workouts and stuff like that with some. Uh, I think I worked out with Matt Marullo with the Diamondbacks and um, a couple other workouts, uh, you know, during my senior year after the season and stuff like that. But just um, I think I said better players haven't got drafted and, and worse players have, and that's baseball. So. It is what it is. Played a little independent ball and, you know, just enough to realize, you know, hey, I could kick around here for a while, uh, but I don't know if making, you know, 500 bucks a, a month after I uh, got a 387 in finance was, um, you know, the smartest decision for me. So mm-hmm. ultimately, I just I didn't stay all that long and left and went to work and realized, wow, I, I hate working in an office and uh, I should really give this baseball thing another shot. But on the other side of it, did you only play just a couple games in independent ball? Yeah, really. I I originally went out to the Frontier League, which I really really liked the setup out there. I liked how you know the living situation, just how you were treated. Um, and I hurt my knee, you know, diving for a ball, and I was going to miss a few weeks. And at the time, it was you know uh, training camp and stuff like that. So they kind of did me a favor in a sense and released me um, because it you know it could have been a month. Um, and they had to put a team on the field and I went back home and rehabbed and ended up signing with, um, New Haven in the Can-Am league. And it, it just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a enjoyable setup. Really? The guys who play in these independent leagues who are eating peanut butter sandwiches and stuff like that. I mean, I, of course you want to live the dream, but at some point you just got to go, you know, like you said, you, you could... You had a good grades in finance, so you could get a job doing something else where you know you're not sleeping on a you know on a mattress without a box spring. Right, and that you know that was a thing. I mean, I'm playing the outfield. The guy next to me, you know, graduated from Florida State, was uh, just got sent down to uh, extended spring training, and he got his release to go back and, and play somewhere. And it's just like. You know, a lot of the guys around you didn't have a degree. They didn't have anything to fall back on. And, um, you know, I kind of talked about that with my dad during the those that week or two when I was just kind of, you know, explaining to him how miserable it was. And um, he said, yeah, I mean, th- those guys don't really have options and they, they have to play the game. And you don't have to do that. So you make a decision and, and you stick with it. You know, you can play at that level. You know you can, but. How long you want to do it is completely up to you. So you decided to get into coaching. Did you coach back at, at Salve right away? or So essentially I, I stayed the year and coached and kind of worked out as working towards playing independent ball. Um, and the team that year had a lot of success. Like we, we were at the time, I think, set the single season wins mark for the school at 32. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm pretty good at this. And my dad was like, hey, you coach third. You want to call the pitches? Great. Like, do do as much as you want to do. And um, after the year and after 
after it was kind of done with independent ball, he said, um, you know, I can't, there's nothing more I can teach you essentially. Like you got to go out and you got to learn from someone else now. And, um, so I went into URI in the off season and, uh, talked with Jimmy Foster, who's now the coach at Army and said, um, you know, he knew my dad because my father coached, I mean, Rhode Island's small, so everyone knows everyone, but, uh, my dad had coached him at Bishop Hendrickson, uh, probably 20 years earlier. And, um, so I interviewed with, with Jimmy and he took me on staff and I was there for six years, you know, 2006 to 2000 or 2007 to 2012. I was a coach at uh, the University of Rhode Island. And then how did the transition go in regards to you going back, I guess, going back home? Was, was that kind of worked out with your dad was kind of saying, you know, I'm getting ready to hang him up. Are you interested in coming over? Or? Yeah, he you know, the the game had changed so much with the recruiting and, the, you know, I mean, listen, I, you can count on probably a hand the amount of days from June to now that I've not recruited, not had a visit, not been in the office. You know, it's probably four days. Um, and he just couldn't keep up with that, you know. And, and so he said, essentially, you know, I, I'm – winding down here, you know, maybe a year, uh, a year left. If you want to come back and help me out, um, you know, I'm going to give this up after next year. So I came back after 2012. So it was, uh, 2013, I came back and I was associate head coach. Um, and we finished off that year and, and he, uh, retired as a head coach and I kind of walked into it. So when I was looking at your profile, I noticed that you're speaking on base running. That was old. Yeah. But oh, okay. Division three, they, they haven't really updated my bio. That was in the, uh, it was, I think, January of 2018, where it was a week after the national convention is usually when they have the World Baseball Coaches Convention at Mohegan Sun. Um, but yeah, I got to make three uh, presentations, and um, I think one of them's on YouTube somewhere. And is, so, is that kind of one of one of your specialties? Is because I, I believe I also ran. Well, I know I read that, that you stole like fifty consecutive bases without being caught. So I, I assume it. So that that base that base running is kind of you know one of your things and something that you stress. You're not a fan of you know just of swinging for the fences. Right. Well, I mean, I think that uh, in today's game, you certainly have to you know in the college game at least. Um, there's got to be some element of, you know, being dynamic and having a, a number of different ways to do things. And, um, you know, so when I, when I was at URI and what initially, I guess, attracted Jimmy Foster to say, Hey, you know, we want this guy is I said, let me, you know, I can work on the situational stuff, the base running, the bunting. And, you know, um, he was really big on that. I mean, that was something, and we had a lot of success. I mean, we would win midweek games just because we could punch for base hits, you know, steal four or five bases. And if you look back, um, you know, there was two or three years there where we were top 10 in the country in stolen bases and stolen bases per game. Uh, but that was just a big part of it because we were underfunded <clears throat> with 2.7 scholarships when, when I started there, you can imagine that. Um, so, you know, all the best players were, going to UConn and going to Boston College and going to Northeastern and Stony Brook and St. John's, et cetera. And uh, we had to get guys who had a high ceiling but weren't as, um, you know, 
weren't as talented at the time as kids that were going elsewhere, and we really had to develop them. So we were looking for athletic kids that could run the bases or, or you know, were fast, and we had to teach them how to run the bases and teach them how to bunt for base hits and just, um, you know, do all those things. And we that was really what I think put us on the national stage because in 2009 we won 37 games. We beat University of Miami. We beat Ohio State. We beat Oklahoma State. Um, we beat somebody else, College of Charleston, maybe. I mean, we had like four or five nationally ranked wins, and uh, we should have gotten that large bid. Uh, the, the RPI formula was not how it is now where uh, teams from the north who play their first, you know, 15, 20 games down south. Sure. Um, yeah. They, we didn't, we didn't, it didn't account for that. So when it was all said and done, the, if I remember correctly, the, um, one of the chairmen for the NCAA committee who did the, um, you know, was part of the at large selection and stuff like that was from Oklahoma State. Now we went down to Oklahoma State and split with them. Uh, so, you know, it just kind of a, uh, a kick in the nuts, so to speak. And, um, I mean, we made our own bed because we got beat in the finals by a, a good Xavier team. Um, who just was very scrappy and, and played us tough. But um, it was kind of disappointing that we didn't get that. And But, you know, seeing the game evolve and seeing a, a UConn get a at-large bid and, you know, two years ago Northeastern getting a large bid, to me gives me some satisfaction that they are now, you know, recognizing, um, you know, teams who have it a little bit more difficult than, than most. I've noticed it too, where I think there's a definite push to get some northern-based teams and, and at least getting them the opportunity to host a regional. And Stony Brook going to the World Series. I mean, if they don't win their conference that year, they're not getting it at large bid. And that's, you know, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's difficult. And it's even more difficult in Division Three because, I mean, in 2018, we were the last team on the board for yeah. an at-large bid uh, with, with Virginia Wesleyan. Virginia Wesleyan got the first amount of votes. We got the second amount of votes. And um, but there's only 58 teams that go. It's not 64. So you're dealing with, I mean, it's like 13 bids uh, for, for at-large teams, and, and there's 392 in the country. So there's more there's more teams and less of an opportunity to make it to the postseason. Yeah, there's almost 100 more D3 teams than D1. Right. So, so it, it's certainly a lot harder. And you, you mentioned you kind of hit on it a little bit ago in regards to when you were talking about recruiting and I can't even imagine what it's like to be a coach in your situation where, you know, you're, it must be very difficult to basically have your eyes on this big list and just see guys kind of disappear off there. And instead of, you know, players coming to you, you really have to go out and try to find the players. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously, um, it's a very, very competitive region and every kid, you know, a kid growing up who's a good baseball player doesn't grow up and say, oh, I want to play division three baseball. They, Everybody wants to, just like me, I mean, I want to be the quarterback at Notre Dame, and I wanted to, you know, be a, a shortstop at Florida State or Miami or Wichita State or whatever. Um, but we essentially, um, my assistant and I, who, who handle the recruiting, are trying to get the best players we possibly can on campus in July and August, and certainly there were half a dozen times where we met with a kid on a Monday, and by Friday, he's committed to, you know, uh, UConn or um, Northeastern or Quinnipiac or URI or whatever. And that's that just is what it is. But we're 
Mm-hmm. We're just trying to meet with the most exciting guys who excite us the most. Um, and, and we're looking for those fringe D1 guys who, you know, yeah, you can go play Division One baseball, but maybe you're not going to play right away. Or maybe, you know, the program that wants you um, hasn't had many winning seasons in the last half dozen years. So we're just trying to provide an option and say, listen, we're running this like a D1 program within the D3 rules, but um, – you know, you could come out here and be an impact guy and play right away and be part of conference championships and play in regionals, or, you know, you could follow a dream. And it just you, the hard part becomes when you want to bring in a certain amount of guys and you've met with so many guys that kids just want to come. You know, you they, they've bought into it, but maybe you already have two center fielders or two first basemen or what have you. And then, you know, you can't really stop anyone from coming to the school essentially. So uh, the numbers game is a difficult one to, uh, because what are we going to do? Tell a good player who wants to come here in February that we don't have a spot for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, there's no, there's no pressure necessarily to commit and um, all these kids are committing and they all have different timetables. And, you know, some years you think it's like, all right, we're good. And then three other guys who you met with in, in the summertime are like, hey, it didn't work out with this school. And um, this. Yeah. And then they want to come back. But, yeah, you had to do what you had to do. Right. So, you know, it's it just it's difficult. And, um, you know, I guess I'm fortunate at this school, you know, Salve Regina, where the uh, student body is. 70% female, um, so the school lets me keep a, a bigger roster and, and stuff like that, but it's hard, you know, I, it coaches, just keeping coaches around year to year, I mean, they're not getting paid all that much, so you really have to find, um, you got to find the right guys, and it's just, you're constantly fighting that battle with, um, you know, keeping them around and trying to get the, get them enough money so that they can eat and live uh, a normal life. Um, but there's an element of coaching where you, you really have to grind it out. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand that because I get emails from, um, you know, all over the place about coaching opportunities when they open up. And I'm like, well, yeah, it pays 5,000. So that might work in Iowa, you know, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. you can make that work. But in the Northeast, I mean, if you walk off the campus here or even on the campus, I mean, there's mansions everywhere. I mean, to live in Newport is expensive. If you want to go have a beer, it's usually 7 bucks. Um, so, you know, it's just there's – I see less people who are grinding it out. I mean, my first year coaching at URI, I was a volunteer. My second year, I made 2000 My third year, I made 4000 My fourth year, I made 6000 you know, then we had a real good year. I made, I don't know, 20000 but it was still without benefits. Um, it's, did you say you you did have did or did not? Did not. Did you did. say you Yeah, okay. So, now, you know, you're, you hopefully through your 20s, you stay relatively healthy, but um, yeah. it's just, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm definitely rooting for those people who grinded it out and did it the right way. Um, and weren't given anything along the way that they didn't earn or didn't deserve. And, you know, you hear stories of, you know, Tim Corbin, who uh, was wherever he started, he's sleeping in his car because they didn't have a recruiting budget and stuff like that. And 
Um, you know, I can remember one time at Diamond Nation leaving there at 1030 and just kind of like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to be here in another six hours or, or seven hours, whatever. Let me just see if I can doze off in my car um, mm-hmm. because you only have a couple grand of recruiting budget. And if you start sure. staying in hotels and stuff like that and, and going down to Diamond Nation or wherever, um, it, it dissipates real quickly. Uh, so, you know, it, I just, you're always rooting for that, for that guy who grinded it out and did it the right way. Um, I had an assistant, Brian Keu, who worked for $2,000, $2,000, you know, maybe his last year made 15000 with camps and everything all said. And he, you know, I was happy that he got a head coaching job at Decker up in, uh, up in Worcester, Mass. Um, and that was two years ago. So, you know, those are the guys I'm rooting for. And when I talk to my friends in baseball, you always, you're, you're always rooting for those guys who, you know, put their time in and they, and they did things the right way. I can appreciate that. It shows that they're dedicated, they're motivated, and they're in it for the right reasons. They're doing it because they love baseball. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's very easy for someone to do it for a couple of years and say, I can't make this work. And then they jump into like summer AU because these, these uh, travel teams are popping up everywhere. And, um, you know, they're making twice as much money as, as coaches are doing their, their travel team. Crazy? Doing the, it's crazy. It is. And I, I mean, you know, and, and some of these guys do a great job. They, they prepare kids. They're honest with them. They, they know the programs. They do their homework on the coaches and, and they tell you, you're going to get, you're going to learn just as much there as you are at maybe this division one school. Only you're going to win and, you know, you're going to get a great education. And there's other guys who they're just constantly pushing kids to places that are the wrong fit, uh, simply to say that they got an extra guy uh, mm-hmm. on a Division mm-hmm. One roster, Division Two scholarship, you know, whatever the case is. It's just so you learn that along the way, who you can trust, and, and you try to make every effort to, you know, see those teams play as often as possible because – um, you know, those are guys doing it right. You'd mentioned a couple things just kind of in passing in regards to what you use as kind of incentives for someone to come to your school. So what's, what's kind of the pitch that you give as, as to why someone should, should come to Salve? Well, it's a great education and it's an amazing part of the country. Um, we've had a ton of success, you know, getting, I had a kid four or five years ago from Don Bosco who came up here with his father. His brother played Division One baseball, didn't have the best experience. He came up here, had never been in Newport, fell in love with it. Um, he ends up being an All-State kid in New Jersey. And if you ever read the All-State list in New Jersey, it's like he's going to Duke, he's going to Virginia, he's going sure. to Florida. He's Absolutely. Going, and then, you, you know, you got a kid going to South Virginia, which was, you know, uh, quite an anomaly. Some kids just fall in love with the area, being by the water, uh, the mansions. It's a beautiful campus. From a baseball perspective, I try, I, I tell them player development first and foremost. I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to run this as much like a D1 program as I can without breaking any of the rules. Um, we're up to date with some of the analytics. I mean, we, we have a Rapsodo. Um, our strength and conditioning is really individualized. You know, I see a lot of cookie cutter programs where they're, you know, everyone's getting the same program and everybody has different needs. I think I stressed the summer ball placement because something I started doing at URI was placing, you know, 20, 25 guys each year in, in summer collegiate leagues across the country, whether it's in the 
you know, the Mink League or the Jayhawk League or the NECBL and the Cape League, which everyone wants to play in. You know, last summer, I think I had 14 guys playing in uh, competitive, you know, summer programs in New England in the Midwest. Uh, right now, I already have eight or nine guys placed for next summer in these leagues. And, you know, what I'm really looking for is that kid who has a chip on their shoulder who thinks, hey, you know, I should have been a D1 player. I am a D1 player. Um, and I tell them, listen, I have 10 or 12 D1 players on my team. I got a closer that throws yeah. 92. We got this guy here and this guy here. And, you know, this kid was getting an offer at URI or a roster spot here. And um, But they wanted to play right away. And you're still going to get a chance to go back out after you get a chance to play and, you know, go and go play in the summertime somewhere against one of these guys in, in a collegiate league. And um, I think that you're going to be more prepared if you come here and get 130 plate appearances as opposed to a guy that maybe went to a D1 school and only got 12 plate appearances as a freshman. Um, so I try to try to identify those kids maybe with a chip on their shoulder that want to prove coaches wrong and, and you know, have somebody say two or three years down the line, wow, we really missed on that kid. He turned out to be a heck of a player. And then, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly young guy, and my assistants are fairly young. So we're, um, you know, we're pretty hardworking. We're, we're always somewhere, either on a baseball field recruiting or, you know, in our office or on our field doing something. And um, we're just trying to build this up. So it's, I mean, it, it's an easy place to sell. We have a great product. Um, but certainly there's so many programs is just in this region that are incredible options for kids. So you're hoping that maybe the day Eric Podelsky from Wheaton saw this kid, he wasn't as impressed or, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Coach Flaherty from Southern Maine or Brendan Igerbrow from UMass uh, Boston yeah. or – you know, I mean, there's just so many good programs in this region, and there's so many. It's a great area for, you know, we we had a little pipeline for a while from, like, Florida, where I had back-to-back years where I got a catcher and an infielder from Florida um, who were interested in, you know, coming up to the Northeast and getting a real good education and having the ability to play baseball. You can really set yourself up for um, a good future with, uh, with a good education, and um, certainly these kids – who are playing sports or, you know, could be anything are networking with people. I mean, they're fundraising, they're doing all these things. And then uh, I just had a lefty pitcher call me two weeks ago who just graduated and was like, coach, you know, I just killed an interview. They said it was one of the best interviews they've ever had. And they're asking me about sales questions and how that pertained to what I did in, in college. And, you know, I talked about recruits that we had or summer, you know, camps that we worked or things like that. He basically like it was easy. And, and that's, obviously the goal is you want to play as long as you can in any given year and and maybe, you know, make it to a college world series. Um, We haven't been that fortunate. We've been in a few regionals in the last four years and uh, can't, can't get out of the regional, but you know, the the real goal with these guys or the, the big goal is that they graduate and they have opportunities and they're in demand and, and they're, you know, functioning at a high level in, in society, you know, and that maybe not what I wanted to hear two or three or five years ago, but um, the older you get, the more you, you start to appreciate that. Considering the success that you've had and, and your age, should, should a recruit coming to your school feel apprehensive that when he's an upperclassman and looks in the dugout, there's going to be someone else who's head coach? 
you always get asked by recruits, well, how long are you going to be here? You know, you, you've won for six years. Are you going to leave? And, you know, I always tell them it's, it, to me, Division One, Two, II, and Three doesn't define how good a coach is. It's a very difficult question to answer. I tell them I love it here. I have a, a place here. I went here. Um, so it's got to be a real incredible offer to, um, you know, to get me out of, out of Newport, Rhode Island. Um, you know, it, the game is changing a little. It, it's starting to, and you're seeing a lot of, um, you know, you've seen a lot of college guys make the jump to professional baseball, which is nice because baseball is decades behind other sports um, in that aspect. Um, I mean, the Patriots won a Super Bowl and they didn't have a a coach on their staff that, you know, played a Division One down. Um, that's really cool. Uh, I've, you know, I'm fortunate. I grew up in, in Rhode Island and I'm friends with Rocco Baldelli, who's now the manager of uh, the Minnesota Twins. Doing a phenomenal job. I sat down and kind of met with him in the wintertime. And, you know, we, we usually get together once or twice a year and just uh, either have a coffee or have dinner and, you know, talk baseball. And, um, you know, that's so – and they hired, a you know, a pitching coach from the college ranks. I think it was uh, uh, Arkansas maybe. So that, you know, that's unique in itself, and it's really cool because a lot of the, you know, the the – the old adage was that player development only happens at the pro level. And then you see now that teams are really making an emphasis to draft college players um, because of player development and stuff like that. And all, all these college coaches understand how to interpret the analytics that are starting to come into play more and more every year. Um, but, you know, long story short, I, I like my life. I think part of coaching is, is, having a, a high quality of life and you know at the end of the day if I don't want to recruit tomorrow I don't have to if I don't want to meet with somebody I don't have to if I want to go to Block Island with my girlfriend for the day I can now I don't often do that and you know you could ask her because she complains all the time that I don't take any time off part <laughs> of me really enjoys running a program the way that I want to so I know that my next step would probably have to be working for somebody else. Um, and yeah. if that was the case, it would have to be someone that, you know, I really respect and admire. And um, it would, you know, there would have to be a, a big selling point for me to, to leave here because I really don't think, uh, I know that there's a stigma that, all right, well, you're a Division three coach, so I'm going to opt to a Division one coach because his opinion is, uh, you know, more meaningful or matters more. But yeah, that's I, don't really, I don't really think that. I don't really think that. No, it's just like with the players, how you're saying. Like I said, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of division one coaches and programs that underachieve all the time. Um, but because they're located where they are and they're not expected to bring in a revenue or anything like that, um, you know, 500 is good if your players are happy. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I, that's the industry that I chose to work in. But, um, yeah, it is very, very, very difficult. Um, it's not like I have, Teams, I mean, since I've been here and, and we've won a lot, we've had a lot of success. I've had um, maybe one or two schools reach out and say, hey, are you interested in this job? You should apply if you are. Um, and that's really, that's the only way this, this profession works. I mean, if somebody from that school isn't telling you, listen, apply, they're very interested in you or we're very interested in you because he's an athletic director or something, um, you know, you can put your name in, in the ring, but 
it's not who it's not what you know and what you've done. No, that's what you know. It's sure. Who you know. But what, what am I? You know, I'm going to sit here and complain when um, I have a head coaching job because of uh, who I knew. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of you know catch twenty two. But um, it's it's tough. It's competitive, and every year kids are leaving pro ball or getting released, and they're jumping into uh, coaching. And um, you know, it's just it's good to have pressure, and, and I think the best pressure is the, the pressure you put on yourself to run a program better and better every year. You mentioned your girlfriend earlier. Is is she a baseball fan or, or does she at least follow the game? I would think it would be a prerequisite for anyone who is coupled with the coach to be able to keep the scorebook. For the most part, she does. For the most part. You, I, I mean, that was, uh, you know, I try to quiz her on this stuff, and she's, I mean, in the last two years, it's gotten a lot, a lot better with um, everything. But uh, I, I splurged a little bit and got the front seat uh, on the Green Monster. And all week, she's like, yeah, yeah, all right, you know, okay, yeah. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, why? This is awesome. Like, I, I can't wait to be yeah. on the front row of the Green Monster. I've never, I've never done this before. And we get there, and then she's like, oh my god, this is awesome. And I said, oh, I've been telling you this all. I've been telling you this all week. And she goes, Oh, I thought the green monster was up there. So she she thought the green monster was in right field on top of like the grandstands where the Bud, <laughs> Budweiser deck is. She she's like, uh-huh. yeah, I've been there a bunch of times. So she didn't she didn't even know where the green monster was. Um, I wanted to tweet about it. You know, I, I didn't. <laughs> um, but so for every. You know, few steps she gains in knowledge. She she will occasionally take one big one back. Um, some I discuss, <laughs> and some I I just keep private. Well, hopefully, one thing she'll have to learn soon is is where the D three College World Series is, and uh, you guys can make the she can make the trip with you down to Iowa. That would be Cedar Rapids. Would be uh, that would be a nice you know trip. Um, you know, it, we've we beat a team that was there this year. We were two and two against teams in super regionals this year. Um, I, we're, we're trending in the right direction, but it's, again, it's ultra competitive and, um, you know, you, there's gotta be an element of luck to it as well. And I think oh, absolutely. that's, that's what I say to guys coaching in division one is like, you guys have a little bit, it's a little bit easier for you guys to make it to a regional and, you know, anything can happen. I mean, that's the biggest thing. You gotta be in a regional and really anything can happen. And I think the new format is something that will help, um, because, you know, with an eight-team regional, man, if you don't win your first three games, you're, you're playing, you got to win five more, you know, when you, when you lose one of those first three games to just make it to the, the finals, and you probably got to beat someone twice. So yeah, and then you got to win twice. Teams, right. Just having four teams in it, um, you know, makes it a little bit uh, more, uh, you know, realistic for any team. Um, because, you know, we might have eight starters, but, you know, usually guys six through eight are not uh, pitchers I want to be throwing against the Babsons and UMass Bostons of the world. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of teams that wouldn't want any of their pitchers going against the Solvays of the world either. So, (laughs) So, hey, I think I've taken up enough of your time. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Outstanding. Um, Well, I'm glad uh, I'm honored to do it and and, and glad that uh, you're satisfied and um, I wish you the best of luck with all these going forward, and hopefully we can circle back and we can do a, a 2.0 version. 
All right. Well, that was another episode of the One Two Three Inning Podcast. As soon as I wrap this up, I'm going to get to work on finishing another one. So hopefully you'll be listening to this and future episodes soon. Thanks again. Bye. There's a high drive to center. Goodbye.